entering the Freedom Hut. The State of the Union is strong and Trump-tastic, my friends. We will talk about what's coming up tonight with the State of the Union address and also some updates on negotiations over the wall. Will there be a shutdown? And is Northam going to resign? And what's going on with Lieutenant Governor Fairfax in Virginia? A jam-packed show coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. I think you're going to see an incredible speech by the president, uh, a visionary speech. The theme of this year's State of the Union is choosing greatness. Uh, The president's going to lay out some of the great successes that we've had over the last two years and paint a picture of what we can do for this country uh, if we come together, if we work together over the next two years. The president is 100 percent committed and focused on getting real border security, protecting American citizens. We've got to stop the cartels, the coyotes and the human trafficking at our southern border. And the president's going to do whatever it takes to make sure he fulfills his duty to protect this country. To every Republican, if you don't stand behind this president, we're not going to stand behind you when it comes to the wall. This is the defining moment of his presidency. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. It's quite a night here in D.C. It's like the uh, the political Super Bowl of sorts, I guess. Well, that would probably be the election, but it's then a, a really good Monday night football game, even though it's a Tuesday. You know what I'm saying. People are all very excited. Um at least in this town, I don't think the rest of the country cares, uh, or at least much of the rest of the country does not care about the uh, the State of the Union address. But no, look, it'll, it'll be an opportunity for the president to address the American people and lay out what he's going to try to do and, and what his uh, his vision for this country is going forward. And then the Democrats are all going to start spinning it and say that, you know, Russia and impeachment and crazy, crazy stuff. But we know that's going to happen. I wanted to give you my my quick sense of the State of the Union as the president approaches this with a in a 48 percent approval rating, which is pretty good. I see this on the Drudge Report, 48 percent approval rating. And, you know, he he's managed to, I think, under any realistic view of the obstacles put in his place. And I really mean obstacles put in his place. I mean, you know, a lot of presidents have challenges and issues. Not a lot of presidents have an opposition that is willing to completely lose their minds and run wild with a special counsel witch hunt and and convince a lot of unfortunately very naive and easily brainwashed of our fellow Americans that there's a a Kremlin plot afoot, you know, all this stuff. You know, that that this is a president who has faced particularly high ups, a media that is psychotically opposed to him. I mean, they've they've made clowns of themselves opposing this president. And I don't say criticizing, opposing. They are activists working against the president of the United States. And he just keeps on coming. You know, he, he, they, they cannot stop him. I 
there are some things about this president that I think are, you know, that are not my cup of tea. I'm not going to lie to you. Some things are not my cup of tea. I've told you what some of them are. You know, um, I, I think that he sometimes punches down in a way that he doesn't have to, but sometimes it's amusing. But there's also some other stuff about this president that I, I think is is accurately described as awe-inspiring. Uh, his ability to go off prompter and to exude energy in a crowd of 15,000, 20,000 people. I do a, a fair amount of live performance. I do a lot of talking, obviously. You guys listen to me talk. Thank you very much for that, by the way. I'm honored. Uh, what he does is incredible. I mean, the, the energy that he puts out there, and for a man of his age, I mean, he's not that old, but you know what I mean. The energy that he puts out there is astounding. But also his resilience in the face of just withering opposition. I mean, people hate this president. And as I sit here talking to you, you know, you go down a listing of what is true right now about this country. Uh, you know, what, what are the facts that we can point to? You got a 4% national unemployment rate. You've got a, at least for now, it seems stabilizing and still very high stock market. Uh, you have job growth rising last month, double what they expected in jobs. So all these indicators of a strong economy. And as we know, the economy is, of course, the number one issue on the minds of most Americans. You got a strong economy, job growth, low unemployment, no big problems with inflation. And none of these, you know, monstrous economic problems that we could discuss and talk about and get to, you know, none of that is happening right now. And we weren't told that Trump would be a mediocre president. And I would argue that he's been actually much better by the numbers, much better than a mediocre president. He's much better on economics than Obama. And let's just be serious. He just is. Much more pro-growth, much more pro-business and innovation and capitalism than Obama was. And that has been bearing fruit for many, many people around the country and really with it the whole country. Because even if you're not somebody that benefits from the corporate tax cut, you may be somebody who benefits from having a job because of the corporate tax cut. You know, because of the uh, friendly business climate and the small businesses that feel like they don't have the thumb of or the foot of regulation on their neck anymore, you may benefit from getting that job or getting that raise or having more hours. You know, so, so the president has done all these things. But you have to gauge this against what the expectations were that were set for this president. We were told, starting on, because they never thought it would be real, right? They never thought it was going to happen. And from election night on, we were told that he was going to destroy the stock market that he was going to destroy the economy, that he would that we would have you know sp uh, spikes in unemployment, and and the international trade agreements would come to a screeching halt. That we'd be in a trade war with China that would bring us to our knees. That we'd get into a nuclear exchange with North Korea. I mean, if you listen to the fear mongering around this president, and then you compare it to what has actually happened under this president, you will never want to listen to the media ever again. Or at least the so-called nonpartisan media. You, you'll never want to listen to them again. They have been wrong and wrong and wrong. And one 
trend that I think you see is that they get more angry at this president the longer he defies their not just expectations, but their predictions. The more this president succeeds, the angrier they get. They don't care that the more this president succeeds, the better off the American people overall are. This is about the egos involved and the power and the careers and the ideology of those who are Democrats and Republicans who oppose this president. I mean, never Trump in the last month, the never Trump contingent, which really just exists in the media. I mean, I never come across people in normal life. who are like, yeah, I'm, I'm a I'm a hardcore Reagan voting Republican and but I hate Trump. I'm not saying they don't exist, but very few. In the media, though, there's this whole little industry of I'm so Repu- I'm so Republican as a never Trumper that I want Democrats to win because then we can be a real Republican Party again. Huh? Oh, yeah, that's a thing. You can find it if you look around on social media, although Twitter now really exists for one presidential communiques and two for journalists to bicker with each other. That is why that is why Twitter exists, in case you didn't know. Uh, but that's what's going on here. But, the, you know, the president has has this opportunity to not just make the case, but also to stand tall and proud in front of the American people, his resilience and his ability to endure and push forward and do so really as a kind of happy warrior is remarkable is remarkable. Nobody was saying they wanted to, you know, lock up, uh, you know, Obama's kids. I know they were too young to be involved in corruption, but, you know, nobody was saying they were going to go at, you know, they, they, they weren't investigating all of Valerie Jarrett's finances. They weren't, they weren't trying to, you know, turn Michelle Obama's finances upside down and, you know, go after David Axelrod. That wasn't happening. That wasn't happening. And the media on top of it was always telling us Obama's a genius and he's brilliant and he's perfect and he's so handsome and he's so wonderful. And it's all the opposite with Trump. You know, he's a monster. He's destroying everything. He's awful. But there's this disconnect. Because we look around and we see a country that is prospering and that is doing really well. And there just seems to be more of a connection to reality. You know, this is this is a president who and those are, oh, Buck, but he lies about this. He lies about that. Nobody thinks when he says that he's the greatest ever, that that's a factual statement that needs to be checked or whatever. He's allowed to think what he wants. And yeah, he's a salesman. Yeah, he uses hyperbole and exaggeration to make points. Yes, he has a very high self-regard. No higher than Obama's, by the way. And, you know, Trump has actually run companies and done stuff other than just be Trump. Obama was just good at being Obama when he ran for office and then became president, had no record of any kind to speak of, of success beyond personal branding. Now, I know Trump's personal branding is a very important part of his success, but he has done other stuff. So tonight, I want you, if you're going to watch the State of the Union, which I don't know how many, I mean, I have to finish the show and run right over and I'll be watching it from Trump HQ, which I guess technically that's the White House, but people refer to the Trump International Hotel. So if you're in D.C., you want to hang out with the Buckster, I'll be over at the Trump International uh, during the State of the Union. But Trump is going to be standing in front of the American people as a president who has withstood a greater onslaught from the opposition and from the activist left-wing media than anything that has ever happened before. I mean, it, it has been remarkable. And 
You know, I don't think he's going to be able They're going to talk about policy priorities tonight. There'll be talk about infrastructure. I think that Trump is sincere when he discusses infrastructure. I think that as a builder by nature, he would like if there was some way to, you know, spend because because our infrastructure in some places stinks. It does. And, you know, our, our train system, uh, you know, our, our Amtrak system is just abominable compared to what you have in a lot of other countries. Uh, our, our roads and bridges, as everyone's talked about, they're collapsing. You know, they're, they, they could use some upgrades for sure. I mean, there's there's real there's real conversation to be had about infrastructure. No question about it. But Democrats can't they can't give Trump a win. They won't give Trump a win. They will utterly refuse to work with him on something because how can they run against a guy who's got a really strong economy, who's changed the national conversation around the border, who understands the economics involved here of how to get business growing and how to make the American economy as dynamic and, and look, let's be honest, as wealthy as it can be. We want the wealthiest economy possible, the biggest GDP, the most money, the most, we want to win. We want an economy based on People feeling like they can win without the government getting in the way. And, you know, Trump is doing all this with nothing but but belly aching and hatred and nastiness from from the mainstream media. And I'm just I, I, I feel like we should take a moment to say, wow, isn't this an incredible situation? I still wake up some days. I say I can't believe Trump is president. And I don't mean that as in, oh, no, I just mean that as in it's hard to believe that this guy is really president of the United States. That, this, that he pulled this off and that he's still pulling it off. You know, on the infrastructure piece, uh, maybe we'll get into a little more of this after. I mean, I've got some more thoughts on this. You know, a lot of State of the Union preview stuff. By the way, we're going to get into other stuff the rest of the show. I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, let's just have on a whole bunch of guests. What do you expect tonight from this? What do you expect tonight from the State of the Union? I mean, everyone's doing this. I don't know how they do all this this speculation chatter for so many hours. We got... We got updates on real news stories to talk to you about here. We're going to talk about Afghan policy, what's going on there. Uh, maybe I'll even get to Jussie Smollett. That is increasingly looking like a total hoax. I'm, I'm 90% sure it's a hoax at this point. Um, we'll talk about the Northam and Fairfax controversies in Virginia, uh, Pelosi's negotiations with the wall. We've got a show to do tonight, right? I can't just sit here and bring on all my buddies. It'll be fun. What do you think the president's going to say? Yeah, you know, we get it. We're not going to know until we know. And when we know, we know. That's some that's some speculative analysis for you. When we know, we know, and then we'll know. That's what I can tell you is true about the State of the Union tonight. Um, that and uh, I'm hoping to see some fantastic Trump-supporting patriots over at the uh, Trump International later. That's the plan. Team, I've got a quick pause here to let you hear from our wonderful sponsors. We'll be right back. We know that uh, if he were to do that, it would likely end up in litigation and uh, be dragged on for years, drag on for years. And then there would be some question of whether there would be a resolution of disapproval that Ms. Pelosi might generate from the House, which I think would be an unnecessary, uh, unnecessary fight for us to have. Oh, no, not a resolution of disapproval from Nancy Pelosi in the House. How would Trump ever live with himself? I think it'll be okay. That's in reference. uh, That was John Cornyn talking about the possibility tonight that a national emergency will be declared. National emergency, which we all know the Ninth Circus would uh, jump in right away. Even though there is a federal statute, we had our friend Andy McCarthy on the show to talk to us about it. 
There is a congressionally passed and valid statute that says that you do, in fact, have the ability to declare a national emergency as president of the United States and take action based upon it. But the Democrats will say, oh, no. And the Democrats in black robes on the court will shut this thing down and it will go then through a whole court battle. Um, I don't think that those who worry about the precedent here are really understanding who we're dealing with when we're talking about Democrats. Democrats don't care about the precedent. They will, when they have the opportunity and, and the desire, use this power, whether Trump does or not. So I don't find that nearly as compelling as some other people do with all this stuff. Um, but I would just note that uh, this is a possibility tonight. It could happen. This is some people, I think, uh, expecting that this could happen. Uh, this could happen, and it could turn into one of these moments where um, the president says it, and there'll be a whole lot of, of jumping around and, and yelling from Republicans, and Democrats will be uh, very much opposed. And then we'll have to see what this actually means for uh, the agenda going forward at the border. Because we got 12,000, by the way, 12,000 people who are showing up in the latest caravan. 12,000 people who are hoping to get into the United States. And if they, it's really just a function of how much information they have. Meaning if they understand the system well enough, I mean, I would never do this. I could, and I think this would probably be illegal, I could coach each and every one of those migrants, unless they had a criminal background that would show up in their initial check, but I could coach each and every one of them to get through the asylum process so that they would be in the United States free and clear, no problem. I know how to do that. And I'm not saying that it's hard to do. But we have a problem that is continuing at the border. It's only going to get worse. And the declaration of a national emergency and then the courts holding that up would just mean that this continues on. The problem would be exacerbated and it would worsen. Now, I don't think there's going to be a lot of unity, despite that being one of the themes of tonight's speech going forward. I don't think there's going to be a lot of unity on this issue, but I do think uh, I do think that it'll give the president a very useful opportunity to make his case forcefully to the American people about how there is a crisis at the border. It is getting worse. And yes, we need the wall. There's not going to be any wall money in the, in the, in the legislation. Uh, the, um, however, if they have some suggestions about certain localities uh, where um, technology some infrastructures I said about the ports of entry. We might need more ports of entry. We might need some roads. That's that's part of the negotiation. It is not a negotiation for the president to say. What Congress? What did he say today? Congress is. It doesn't matter what Congress does. I knew that he wanted it all to himself. I mean, oh, really? A president who wants to have Congress be completely irrelevant and how we meet the needs of the American people. No, come on. Sometimes it feels like Nancy Pelosi is falling asleep while she's talking. Am I the only one who gets that sense? Like, you know, you're like, whoa, what? Huh? Are you, are you making sense, Nancy? Do you know that you're even speaking right now? What's going on here? Uh, here's the truth of the wall negotiation. As you know, we've got to shut down again looming, although I don't think it'll happen. 
People are saying that tonight there might be the declaration of a, of a national emergency by the president. So we'll see. Although if I'm the president, I, I use this as one last. I use tonight's State of the Union as one last opportunity to make my pitch about how there should be some good faith negotiation here from the Democrats. Uh, and then if you want to do the national emergency, do it right before the next shutdown. Uh, which will go right into the courts, and we'll see how that battle plays out. And that's what I think is going to happen here. But notice how Pelosi, Pelosi's whole uh, whole approach to this is wrong, is is untrue. Pelosi comes at this by suggesting that you know there there can't be any money for a wall, but there can be money for these other things at the border. Okay, so when she says there can be money for other things at the border, she's conceding that we can have a stronger border. She's also conceding that. Border security is a good thing, which I don't think she believes, but she is conceding that. And then she says no money for a wall. Well, if she was negotiating in good faith, since we've established by her own words that the border could be more secure, there are things you could do, and that she doesn't want illegal immigration to continue, which is a lie, but she's at least saying that, so she's established it for the purposes of negotiation. Why not say we will give you money? for a section of fence. Why not say that there will be one place along the border where Border Patrol really, really wants fencing. They say they're really in need. Let's start there and see how it goes, and we'll do an assessment after, you know, 18 months. That would, by the way, by the Democrats, a lot of time. Now, I'm not saying that's what I want. I think the president should just start. I think the president should just do it. Just say, all right, we're building a wall. I mean, does the military have to check in with Congress every time they throw up some barbed wire? They're building a fence. It's a fence. This is not this is not that complicated, folks. We we could just just build a fence. Yeah, it'll be expensive. Okay, well, we'll find a way to get this done within the existing budget, within the existing appropriations. Build a fence. I've seen the fence. It works. They used to say all the time it doesn't work, but now enough people I saw Dan Crenshaw, who, let's be real, is probably gonna run for president in two to three cycles. And probably will win. So that must be cool for him to wake up and be like, yeah, man, like I'm an ex-seal. Now I'm a congressman and, you know, going to be president one day. Anyway, he went down to the border and he came back and he said what I said when I was the border a few weeks before that, which is, yeah, walls work. That's right. Walls work. They do. So we know that walls work. If Pelosi's concern then is it's too expensive, well, then give him some money. That would be a good faith negotiation. That would be an effort to do something realistic. And if she says serve the interests of the American people, let's see if it serves the interests of the American people. But she's not serious about this. This is all politics for Nancy. Play clip five. Let them work their will. I'm an appropriator. See, that's where one of the places I was forged. Intelligence. Shall we go to that subject on the president? Intelligence and appropriations. And they know their they know their brief, they know their limitations in terms of financial resources, and they have to choose the best way to use the money for the American people. And Nancy Pelosi saying I was forged in intelligence. <laughs> I just like that. I was forged in intelligence. I don't know about that. I don't know. Look, I know she's third in line for the presidency again, and she's been remarkably successful at being a politician, which is is troubling. It says a lot of troubling things to me about this country. 
Uh, but the wall should get done. Uh, the wall is something that Trump not only promised, but I think he has won on the merits in front of the American people, the argument about why we need a wall. And this is when you have to look at what what we're facing if it doesn't get if it doesn't get done. Um, I, you know, the, the numbers that we really need, by the way, are how many uh, how many people have come to the border as family units in the last 18 months that are now in the country and they're in the country illegally if they didn't get sanctuary. I'm sorry, not sanctuary. Uh, they get sanctuary city, of course, if they didn't get asylum. How many people that is? And then just start thinking about what that's like now, year in and year out. Two, three hundred thousand here, three, four hundred thousand there, on top of the 20 million that are already in the country. And what is it like in this country when you have a whole voting block of tens of millions of people, because they're going to have children, they're going to be citizens in this country, who don't believe that the border should exist? I mean, if I can say this, if my parents had come here as illegals, wouldn't I wouldn't it be understandable for me to take the position? I'm not saying it makes it right, but, you know, think of put yourself in those shoes. Wouldn't you inherently want to believe that there's nothing wrong with illegal immigration and that an open border is a good thing? You know, if, if part of your own personal narrative, even if you're a U.S. citizen, was my parents came here illegally, isn't it more likely you'd say, well, then there's nothing wrong with legal immigration? Isn't it more likely you'd say that we should have an even more open border so that nobody has to be illegal? My parents are good people. And look, illegal immigrants, you know, most of them are good people. You know, m- most of them are people who just want a better life for the family. You know, a vast majority of them are. I mean, let's. We're all about honesty here, right? I mean, most of them feel they want to show up here and work. They're breaking our laws. They're not supposed to be here. We can't allow them to be here if we're going to have a country with rule of law and sovereignty. But it doesn't mean they're bad people. Same way that, you know, I know people that probably should have paid a little more in taxes, maybe got in trouble with the tax, but they're not bad people. They just, you know, didn't pay their taxes, which is not, which if you're going to have an orderly society that uh, provides services and, and functions, you know, people got to pay their taxes, right? doesn't make you a bad person. There's a difference. Right? Being an illegal immigrant doesn't make someone a bad person. It makes them an illegal immigrant. Being a tax cheat, I would argue, doesn't make them a bad person. It maybe it's a little, a little unethical, but, you know, then again, the tax code is, uh, I would argue the tax code's unethical. I know, I'm going down a hole. See, you get me on this stuff, and you get me in this whole rabbit hole. But Pelosi's not being serious. Back to the, the issue at hand here with the wall. Pelosi's just not being serious about negotiating on it. And it really just all comes down to they know that if Trump gets the fence, he's unstoppable in 2020. And so they they, they realistically, because they're all about power, because that's all they care about, not serving the American people, not border security, nothing else. They're about power first and foremost. They can't they can't give in to Trump on this. And he knows it because if he gets that fence, he wins. If he gets that fence, he will not only win. He will win a few states that he didn't win last time. And there aren't that many that are up for grabs. So that's what's at stake here. Let's see what happens. I want to move on here, but I should say your intel chiefs do say Iran's abiding by that nuclear deal. I know you think it's a bad deal. I disagree deal, with them. I'm, I'm, by the way, you disagree I have with that intel people. That doesn't mean I have to agree. Uh, President Bush had intel people that said Saddam Hussein sure. in Iraq had nuclear weapons, had all sorts of weapons of mass destruction. Guess what? Those intel people didn't know what the hell they were doing. And they got us tied up in a war that we should have never been in. And we've spent $7 trillion in the Middle East. And we've lost lives. You know, Trump 
keeps getting hit with this, oh, you disagree with your own intel chief. I mean, a few things here. I know the intel bureaucracy because I used to be a CIA analyst, so I'm, I'm familiar with this stuff. All right, I, I get it. And the intel assessments that get put out that are briefed to the president, that are briefed to Congress, I mean the assessments, the big assessments, tend to be very watered down, consensus-driven, and are often incorrect. Or if they're not incorrect, they're so broad in their analytic judgments as to not really be very meaningful, which is a major, a major concern, a major issue if you're going to be looking at them as the gold standard of what a president should be paying attention to. Oh, the president should listen to his intel chiefs. Oh, the president should believe. Well, hold on a second. Why should the president necessarily listen to their assessments when the assessment isn't even the assessment of the intel chief, right? It's from the organization. A lot of times it's what various organizations, the 17, I mean, I don't even know if off the top of my head I can name all 17 intel agencies. I, I, I could... If you let me write it down on a piece of paper, I think, and, and I could go through them one by one off the top of my head, but you just rattle them all out. Let me see. No, I'm not. I'm not. No, no, you're not going to goad me into this on air. I'm going to leave one out. I, everyone always leaves out like the National Geospatial, you know, or, you know, one of those always gets left out. It's, it's hard to remember them all. Man, there is a centipede that is crawling on my window right now. That is so do you ever see one of those, Brandon? Oh, it's so gross. I know it's live radio and I shouldn't be talking about the centipede, but I can't stop the show to kill it. But oh, it's like furry and it's got like the, it's not really fur though, their legs. Oh, it's so gross. Temple of Doom. Brandon, come and kill it. <laughs> so, so, oh, this is like this is like torture, man. Because I'm in a I'm a, a live radio. I can't get up. Out of oh, ew, I hate them. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys. Oh, I'm a man. I'm a man. I'm gonna take care of that centipede. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's all right. It's not like it's the grossest bug ever running around on my window on the inside, which is disappointing. Okay, back to uh, that. That really did just happen. Now that that's gonna now. That's going to haunt me if I can't get... When we go into commercial break, we know what I'm doing. I am killing that 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 friggin' centipede. Uh, but on Intel chiefs, who also can be upsetting in their own way, uh, the assessments that they share with the president are not gospel. I mean, this is... this is It should be challenged. It should... The, the assumptions that are baked into a lot of the Intel products have resulted in policies in the Middle East that are not good policies for the u.s they always say this i'll give you a little bit of a you know kind of a in the weeds here for a second they always say you can't be policy prescriptive in analytic pieces at cia dia nsa etc etc they don't want policy prescription but they always want you to kind of put out well it may, maybe a little opportunities or opportunity analysis you know these are the ways that we see how things could play out but really what you're doing is saying Let's kind of push you in this direction. And I know you're not supposed to do it. They say it's not good analytic tradecraft, which, you know, analysis, uh, analysts are too nerdy for tradecraft, but we call it tradecraft. But what ends up happening is you try to try to push the president's mindset on an issue in a certain direction, even if you're even if it's subconscious. That is what you're doing. That's the reality. OK, so start with that. And. The president is allowed to say, I don't like this. But this is, you know, the media love to pretend that there is some 
there's some, you know, monolith of incredible experts out there that disagree with Trump on everything. And Trump is a buffoon for not listening to them. And they're always right. And he's always wrong. And it's just not true. The Intel community has incredible information from the various collection platforms, many classified ones, platforms that I know very well. They they have incredible information, but that's not the same as they have incredible analysis and foresight and strategy because I'm here to tell you they don't. Yeah, I know. Some of my some of my old friends from the uh, some of my old friends from Langley that are listening to this right now. Probably not happy with that assessment. Although some would be like, Buck's just telling you the truth, guys. It, it is true. There is brilliance inside Langley. There is stupidity inside Langley. And when brilliance and stupidity have to agree on something, you know what you get? C-SPAN. No, I mean, you know, you get something that's just not that exciting. You get something that's watered down and consensus driven. And that's never going to be analysis that gets you ahead of the curve. So this talking, it's just a frustrating talking about. I've had to hear it so many times from so many different people. Oh, the president's disagreeing with his intel chiefs. Oh, the president. No, it's not as easy. It's not as straightforward as that. And when you look at the intel chiefs from the last few years, and people like Brennan and Hayden and Clapper, these people aren't just unimpressive. They're unhinged. They are unhinged. They should not be advising. It's actually disconcerting that they were advising the last president at such senior levels. Although that may explain some of the decision making. So you know, Trump is not at war with the intel community. The information they provide to him is what is so essential. The analysis and their opinion and their judgment on some of these matters, that's not their role. The president is the one and his advisors are the ones who look at the information and determine what is in the national security interest of the United States. It is not for someone who's working in sub-basement seven of the Pentagon or, you know, the, the new headquarters building at Langley or, you know, whatever. It's not for them to determine what the national interest of the United States is and also how best to handle these challenges, challenges that have been around for a long time. If the intel community had the answer to how to fix North Korea, how to get us out of Afghanistan, how to you know finish off the last 1% of the Islamic State in Syria, don't you think they had an obligation to tell us already? I mean, shouldn't we already know and wouldn't that have been implemented? They don't know. Their job is not to lead. Their job is to provide information. So, you know, the media doesn't really understand this because they also the media thinks that their job is to provide both information, but also wisdom. You see, the wisdom of our media betters, the wisdom of the journalist elite is to be shared with us all the time. Although you'll see tonight at the State of the Union when they're, you know, they're talking about all this stuff. You'll see they they all will say the same things. They all repeat each other. You know, the same criticisms of Trump, the same hackneyed boilerplate garbage. It's all. You know, the media needs an overhaul, you know, and that's but that's a conversation for another time. You know, the other thing tonight is I just hope at some point they decide, you know, we can stop with the sitting and the standing thing. It's just weird, man. It's just weird. They don't have to do it. No one's forcing them to do the sit, stand, sit, stand, stand, sit. You know, they're not a bunch of trained poodles. They should just be adults and sit and let the president make his speech. But I know, you know, tradition and blah, blah, blah. 
That's it. That, that's my state of the union analysis. Blah, blah, blah. We'll be right back. By now, a lot of us have started racking our brains about what to do this Valentine's Day. Well, I can tell you, I'm already locked and loaded, my friends, with a Valentine's Day surprise that's going to make Miss Molly jump for joy. Because I went to 1-800-Flowers.com. It's not complicated. I've already set it up. You can set it up, too. Don't wait, by the way. That's a JV. That's a rookie move. Roses from 1-800-Flowers are a no-brainer. Right now, when you order early, like I did, you can get the 18-stem Enchanted Rose Medley for $29.99 or double it to the 36-stem Enchanted Roses for $20 more. This is an incredible offer at 1-800-Flowers. I've already set mine up. Miss Molly's getting hers. Shh. Hopefully she doesn't listen to this show right now next week. To order the 18-stem Enchanted Rose Medley for $29.99 or double the roses for 20 bucks more, just go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon, and enter code BUCK. Order today and save. Go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon, enter promo code BUCK, and set up your order for Valentine's today. What surprised you about some of the questions that Robert Mueller asked you? Well, look, the Russia thing is a hoax. I have been tougher on Russia than any president, maybe ever, but than any president. We're, but when it comes def- to the investigation that the special counsel is conducting, I mean, 34 people have been charged here. Excuse seven me. Guilty okay, you ready? Okay, you ready? Of the 34 people, many of them were bloggers from Moscow, mm-hmm. or they were people that had nothing to do with me, had nothing to do with what they're talking about, or they were people that, that got caught telling a fib or telling a lie. I think it's a terrible thing that's happened to this country because this investigation is a witch hunt. It's a terrible witch hunt and it's a disgrace. Why didn't they go after Hillary Clinton for her emails? She had 33,000 emails that were deleted after receiving a subpoena from Congress. The disparity in justice between what Donald Trump has had to suffer through and his top people and what was afforded to Hillary Clinton is the single biggest political scandal of my lifetime so far. And President Trump has had to just suffer through this. Just keep pushing on. It's it's remarkable. It's astounding that he's been as successful as he is with the the 90% of the media, most of the federal bureaucracy and and the entirety of the Democratic Party and Hollywood and Silicon Valley and all this stuff just trying to not just beat him politically, but destroy him, destroy his family, throw people in prison. I know journalists who openly advocate for members of Donald Trump's family to get sent to prison. I know journalists who will openly say that they think the president of the United States should be in jail. And there you had, I don't know if that was uh, Brennan over at CBS, another, just these people are all, these mainstream media people at the network, they're also, they're also uh, not irreplaceable, they're also replaceable, interchangeable is the word I was looking for. They all ask the same kind of questions, they all take themselves too seriously, none of them are that interesting. I just, you know, I can't wait till everyone just just cuts the cord and we're all digital and and there's more and more platforms and, and just, you know, people can really watch and listen to who they want without all these middlemen and all this other stuff that goes on in the process. The, uh, the notion that CBS Evening News still has millions and millions of people that are watched that for half an hour, why? You know, w- w- what does CBS Evening News bring to you? It's not a news channel all day. Then all of a sudden, oh, we got a news show free for 30 minutes. Up, oh, then we'll go. But as she asks Trump about this, about this issue, she says, oh, 34 people have been indicted. Well, 
like uh, half of them are Russian troll farmers who did essentially nothing. Okay, half of them are Russian troll farmers whose whole, you know, uh, involvement in this process is to set up some phony Facebook accounts and do some things that annoy some annoy some libs and Hillary and. And they're never going to set foot in prison. But that's they're trying to pad the numbers. You know, they're trying to make this look more substantial than it is. That's what's going on here. Okay, so and then, you know, these other people that throw in there, too. None of them have been charged with anything that has anything to do with Russia collusion. And I I come across all these libs and say, oh, but, you know, maybe this or maybe that or, you know, yes, no, maybe so. It's all nonsense. It's all nonsense. You know, I know the president's probably not going to focus on this tonight during the State of the Union, but it's a part of me that just wishes that he didn't have to deal with this anymore, ever. Not a part of me, all of me. It's such a waste. It's such a scam. And it's really been unfair to the president. And with that, it's unfair to the American people. I talked to Trump about this. He said it's a drain. He said it's really a, you know, it's a stressor. And it slows them down and prevents them from being able to do what they're supposed to do. And also keep in mind here, Trump has been in many ways pretty moderate. You know, he 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 actually does outreach to the other side, tries to negotiate with them on things, probably wants to do infrastructure. You know, didn't didn't completely repeal. I know it's up to the Senate too. There's other players in all this, but the Trump agenda, other than the wall, which shouldn't be radical, or the fence, which shouldn't be considered a radical position, but it is because Democrats are open borders. There's really nothing that Donald Trump is advocating that's radical. He's just trying to follow through on promises that other politicians have made before. But he's trying to say this time we're really going to do it. Um, and and then there's also the the Iran deal, which uh, is going to get, I think, a renewed focus tonight. Um, I think that he's right in saying that the Iran deal is... See, here's the problem. The left always says that they're complying with the deal. What they don't tell you is the problem is the deal so easy, complying with it isn't enough. That's the problem. Trump's going to talk about that tonight. And he's right, they made a terrible deal. Play 14. My intelligence people, if they said, in fact, that Iran is a wonderful kindergarten... I disagree with them 100%. It is a vicious country that kills many people when you talk about torture and so many other things. Mm -hmm. And maybe they'll come back. The country is getting absolutely... When I ended the horrible Iran nuclear deal, Mm -hmm. it was a horrible deal done by President Obama and John Kerry that didn't know what the hell he was doing. When I ended that deal, Margaret... All of a sudden, Iran became a different country. They became very rapidly. Right now, they're a country that's in big financial trouble. Yep. Obama bailed them out. $150 billion released to them, billions of dollars in cash delivered to them on pallets. The whole thing was wrong. It was wrong. And when you understand Obama's foreign policy philosophy where it comes from who his advisors are the way he acted all made perfect sense which was he was he was an iran appeaser you know he he figured that the way to deal with iran is to try to make them our friends you know have things gone better with iran or cuba as a result of the obama administration no not really nope certainly not iran i don't think you'd say cuba has either meanwhile they they hammer trump because he hasn't fixed north korea the biggest national security crisis on the world stage really the ongoing national security crisis because it involves, 
nuclear weapons. But do they uh, do they give him the benefit of the doubt because he kept in place the sanctions? He's kept in place the pressure that has been there all along um, because he knows that you can't trust Kim Jong-un. He knows the guy's the, the guy's, you know, a weirdo. And obviously borderline looney tunes. I mean, you know, I've never talked to the guy. Very few Americans have. But this is a country that is the most bizarre place on planet Earth. And, you know, Trump has a lot of faith in his abilities, but I think he knows that there's some limitations. And one of the limitations he's going to be up against is that he's dealing with the he's dealing with a lunatic in Kim Jong Un. And that's why he leaves in place the sanctions. That's why he doesn't give them any benefit until they show some reason for that benefit. Unlike Obama with Iran, who Obama shows up, he's like, hey, take all my take whatever you need to to stop being mean to us. It's a bad way to get a deal done. But Obama was not a good deal maker. There are few things more American than a delicious steamy cup of coffee in the morning. If it's black rifle coffee, that's my coffee of choice. This is a great American company run by a bunch of great American patriots. They are veterans, the special operations community. But these guys geek out about their coffee. They're all about small batch, roast to order, fresh delivered to your door coffee that is absolutely delicious. And by the way, it's got a real kick to it, too. If you like a little bit of a jolt from the uh, caffeination station, if you know what I mean, you want Black Rifle. I get it delivered to my door every month. Make this your coffee of choice, too, because they're also a bunch of freedom-loving, patriotic, conservative Americans that run this place, all right? Wake up with America's coffee, Black Rifle Coffee. Visit blackriflecoffee.com slash buck and receive 15% off your order. Again, go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. Blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Later today, the junior senator from Nebraska will give the Senate the opportunity to address an issue of profound moral importance. I understand that he plans to ask consent to pass legislation that ought to be the very definition of something that receives unanimous consent in this body. It would help ensure that all baby girls and boys who are born alive, all of them, have their right to life respected and receive the medical care that they need. The born alive infant bill is currently being held up by Democrats. They are blocking this born alive abortion survivors protection act. This is, uh, has been on the Senate floor in the last couple of days. And Senator Ben Sass has called for unanimous consent on this. And all it does is say that there will be a personhood accorded to a baby that survives the abortion attempt. The way that Democrats respond to this, it's similar to what you see from Senate, uh, Democrat Senator Patty Murray, they say that uh, it's unnecessary because there are already legal prohibitions on it. This doesn't make any sense as an argument, does it? We shouldn't pass this bill because there's already a bill that says this thing that, it's, uh, that, that your bill would do. Well, no, there's not. So and and even if that were the case, well, then why would you object to it? Right. If we passed a bill that said the tax rate is 25 percent and somebody said, no, no, we need to pass this. We need to pass this bill that clarifies the tax rate 25 percent. Why would you object to that? 
But this goes to the heart of the abortion debate as it as it is uh, unfolding in this country right now. And that is that it is impossible for the pro-abortion Democrat Party, which you cannot be a Democrat and not and not be pro-abortion now. I think it may be the only thing that you must, because even among some minority communities, you'll get a pass on uh, on gay marriage, for example. You know, if you are a a left wing, uh, but but practicing Muslim, you might get a pass on your gay marriage views because, well, that's a whole other conversation. You know, meaning that you could be opposed to gay marriage if you were a a practicing Muslim. And that was what you said your reason was. I think the left would give you they wouldn't agree with you, but they might give you a pass. Abortion. uh -uh. You absolutely have to be pro abortion. They obviously say pro choice. If you're going to be a Democrat, there is no room for you anymore in the party. No room for you anymore in the party unless you sign on for that. But when they talk about this issue. When they talk about what's going on with these bills in Virginia and in New York, there's always a lot of lies. There's always a lot of dishonesty about what the law actually says, what it really means, and what it would do. Why can't we have an honest discussion? If this is a constitutionally protected right, as the Democrats say it is, why can't we have an open and honest discussion about it. Why isn't there room for this? In fact, my friend David Harsanyi over at The Federalist wrote, why Democrats can't talk honestly about abortion? I just see this now. It's a piece. The truth is unconscionable in a modern world. Yeah, that's why they have to do all this, you know, uh, changing the subject or, you know, not saying things aren't true when they are true. I said this, my advisor, Hadley Arkies at Amherst, was back in the, in the, in the, I believe it was the late 80s, pushing for the Born Alive Infants Protection Act. Because there was, in fact, no legal clarity on what to do with the product of a failed abortion, that product being a human being. What do you do? With somebody, and, and the left cannot grapple with this. They also cannot grapple with the fact that there is no such thing. There is no such thing as a medical condition that requires abortion for the mother in the third trimester. There is, or, or there are rather, conditions that require delivery, but not abortion. And you know, these are facts. The left that pretends has all this cultural attachment to being hashtag science and pro-science. We know that they discard this when it comes to gender. We know they discard their their so-called love of science when it comes to abortion and the science around abortion and what is provable and demonstrable in terms of fetal pain and heartbeat. and, And this is a moment when we should all stop and think not all issues are just a difference of opinion. This is one of them. Third trimester abortion is wrong. It is barbaric. In fact, there's another piece that I would recommend to you on the Federalist that says that it is the hallmark of a pagan culture. And as this country is culturally de-Christianizing, there is 
more and more room for these kinds of pagan ideas of utility, which you could take all the way back to ancient Sparta. You know, Sparta, we think of from the movie 300 as this uh, place that was fighting for freedom against the Persians. And Sparta was a brutal slave state, actually. Perhaps something that we just we could do a deep dive in history another time. But Sparta was a brutal slave state where they also would leave infants that had any infirmity out to die via exposure. And that the parents, sometimes in consultation with some of the the elders of the city-state of Sparta, would say, okay, and they would just leave the baby out to die. Pagan culture, obviously, and a brutal but utilitarian one, the idea being that it's not it was not worth the resources in their mind to rear a child who had a, you know, a, a leg that would never work, or whatever the case may be, would never see, or would never... They would leave the child out to die. The hallmark... I would argue, of a Christian culture is one in which life is respected always and at all stages. And the preciousness of life, the value of life, is the central building block for the entire society. And there are whole philosophical discussions that maybe are worth even having on this show, although I don't, I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to sound like this is some kind of a poli-sci 101 lecture, although... I, that is my that is my academic background. I, I've told you I studied with Hadley Arcus. You can read some of his works if you want. First Things or Philosopher in the City or he has all these different original works of conservative jurisprudence. I'm not going to lie to you, a little dense, a little, a little tough to get through some of it. Um, but, you know, the foundation of, of, a, of a moral society as a society that respects life is something that we cannot lose sight of. And it certainly was was at the heart of. Uh, the genius of of the founding, despite the imperfections uh, at the start of this nation that you're all quite familiar with as well. So, you know, this this is a big one. And, and you know, Trump, for all of his flaws, and I've recently had some friends who are never Trump really try to start lecturing me on on, you know, Trump's bad because of this and Trump's bad because of that and all this other stuff for all of his flaws. The truth is that President Trump has been as pro-life a president as has existed in my lifetime. Ronald Reagan, when he was a politician, when he was the governor of California, signed an abortion law into signed an abortion law into effect and later changed his mind. I'm not saying Reagan didn't have a change of heart. And, but Trump is as pro-life a president in terms of policy as we have had. And the judges that he is putting on the federal bench and up for the Supreme Court will have the effect in time. I'm not sure they'll be able to overturn Roe or even truncate more of Planned Parenthood v. Casey, but they will have the effect, I believe, of shifting the conversation and saving lives. And so it is not an exaggeration to say that because Trump was able to defeat Hillary Clinton in that in that last election, if you are pro-life, and I am, and I know many, maybe not all of you, but many of you listening are, if you are pro-life, remember, as our president is addressing the country tonight, and a lot of people are always picking on him about this or that, and you know his tweets or his business dealings or his, you know, his manner of speaking, whatever it may be. If you believe that abortion is the taking of a human life, President Trump has used his power to put people in place in other positions of power that will result in over the long term, in fewer infants being killed 
to this procedure, which means that President Trump is responsible for saving a lot of lives. President Trump is responsible for saving a lot of lives. It's worth remembering that. One of the bills I've introduced this legislative session with my good colleague, Senator Will Haskell, would increase the tax on ammunition here in the state. Currently, ammunition is taxed at the same rate as other products, uh, but we want to increase it by 50% because we see this as a prevention measure. Um, it wouldn't apply to uh, law enforcement or to military, uh, but for example, if someone were to buy a 50 cartridge box of ammunition, which goes for about $10, it would increase the price to $15. Uh, we see this as a public health measure, um, similar to what we've done in the state of Connecticut with increasing the tax on cigarettes. Uh, when we increase that tax, we've seen a reduction in use. And so we want to continue Connecticut's legacy of being a leader on preventing and addressing gun violence. And we see this as another step forward in that direction. What an imbecile. You know, I understand that people now like to uh, try to go. A lot of these politicians, even state politicians, see it as a way to get to the national level really quickly. They, they create these little little videos. That was state rep Jillian Gilchrist in Connecticut, who's talking about this 50 percent tax increase on on ammunition. And look, she's good. Anything that goes to anything that serves to stick a thumb in the eye of people who like guns in the Second Amendment, anything, is something that libs will celebrate. Because what is one of what is one of my favorite things to make sure that everybody's on, on, on board with, that everyone understands, libs are not really so concerned with opposing gun violence. They are concerned with opposing the people who believe in owning guns. It is cultural disdain that they are showing this whole hatred of gun violence and and all the anger toward guns is really just a proxy for hatred for gun owners they if you own firearms you tend to be pro-life you tend to be more conservative you tend to go to church you tend to live in red states i mean this is obviously a very broad generalization but those are all categorizations that generally are true and libs hate all that stuff so guns now have be and, and they have been for a long time. Guns are effectively, in the eyes of libs, the equivalent of a MAGA hat. Although they probably think MAGA hats are even more dangerous. But guns are like MAGA hats. If you wear a MAGA hat, that's all lib has to that's all lib has to know about you. If you believe in the right to bear arms, that's all lib has to know about you too. There used to be these Democrats that were the gun toting Democrats and the blue dog Democrats and all that's that's really going going by the wayside. I mean, the Democrats have become not just a, a pro-legal immigration party and a socialism party, but they've become a an anti-Second Amendment party. And, and just stepping back here for a second at the at the nuts and bolts of this proposal, the tax ammunition, 50 percent. I mean, I've heard of some really harebrained schemes before where people have said, well, maybe if we make bullets so expensive, they won't use them. This is this is essentially an extension of that. Think about how stupid her logic is here or, or how inept her reasoning is. A 50% increase on ammunition. Does anyone think that if someone's going to go shoot somebody in a gangland shooting, they're going to say, oh, I can't do this gangland shooting because it's going to cost, you know, $15 instead of $10. All this does is drive the costs up for people who like to go either hunting or sport shooting. Those are the only people 
who are really going to be any civilians who are really going to be affected by this. But it's a way of showing cultural disdain. I mean, the, the idea that this somehow is uh, is akin to smoking. Smoking is bad for you. If you want to do it, that's your choice. But smoking is bad for you. And they have said for a long time that if you do it, you're going to have you know, you're going to put yourself at a higher risk for diseases. And if we're going to have a healthcare system that takes into account your risk factors, smoking is a risk factor and health insurance looks at risk factors. And, you know, this is this is how they justify it. And whether you agree with that approach or not, at least it is based on something that is true. There is no public health risk to you or your friends being able to buy a bunch of uh, you know, a, a bunch of 12 gauge rounds to go out and shoot some sporting clays or go buy a bunch of, you know, two, two threes to go fire off uh, in your AR or whatever. There, there's no, you know, 22 long rifle. I mean, whatever it is you like to go shoot. There's no public health risk to you going and shooting and, and doing this in a way that you're enjoying your Second Amendment rights. But in Connecticut, they know it's dumb, but it doesn't matter because it's just about Guns bad, gun owners bad. That's the way they think of it. If I could look at the picture, but I think there are three photos. One, me standing in front of a car that I restored. One, kneeling, uh, like on a farm setting. And then one, just a more formal picture. Uh, I did submit those. Um, where this other picture came from, I don't know. Uh, and I'm not going to sit here and, and hypothesize or speculate how it happened. But I can only imagine that if there are a number of photos laid out on a table and someone is pasting those on page after page, that one could get mistakenly put on the wrong page. And, and as I said earlier, uh, this has happened numerous times in this particular yearbook, and I suspect that's what happened in this case. This was not my picture. I was not in that costume, either uh, as black-faced or as KKK, uh, and it's, it's not me. I mean, this guy is such a liar. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. I mean, it's so obvious that what he is saying is not true. This is the governor of Virginia. And this is somebody who you think you could expect some level of decency and honesty from. You know, this is a guy, well, he's a Democrat, but I mean, other than that, you know, he is a senior official for the state of Virginia. And and here it is, uh, a time when, we all know he already said sorry. So no person I, I stand behind what I said yesterday. No person who has ever posed for a photograph would look at a photograph of themselves in it and say, that's me when it's not them. That does not happen. All right. This is not it's not the Russians. There's not some elaborate international conspiracy here. The Chinese did not. You know, go back and Photoshop every copy of this yearbook ever and replace it in, in old dusty libraries that anybody noticing. This guy Northam's a liar, which I think is the worst part of this. Yeah, the photo is really racist and terrible and bad. No question about it. But the photo was also over 30 years ago. And and I, as I said to you yesterday, I, I believe this very strongly, that people should not be judged by the worst thing they ever did a long time ago in terms of their judgment. I mean, you know, not including mass murders and stuff here, but for people that, you know, erred, uh, for people that said the wrong thing or or. Um, held the wrong beliefs, whatever they may have been, if they've repudiated them and lived a good life since them. I mean, I do think there's a statute of limitations on stupidity. I think that we need to enforce that as a society. There needs to be a statute of limitations on stupidity. 
Meaning, you know, if, if someone finds some photo of someone from college and they're in their 50s and they've been a really good family man and a good public servant, et cetera, et cetera, you know, you got to weigh that in. It can't just be, oh, we found somebody. And I'm not saying this specifically, but, but anything that you'd find about somebody from college. That all said, the lying about this is, is just uh, way too much for anyone to, to stomach. And it's so clear that um, this guy is just full of it. I thought this was interesting. You know, MSNBC desperate to do what they always do, which is everything is Trump's fault. I mean, at some point, this becomes a really unfunny joke, right? Everything is Trump's fault. And, and here is some guy on MSNBC blaming Trump for Northam's 30-plus-year-old blackface KKK controversy. Play clip 21. When did blackface become a thing again? Why, why does it seem as if blackface <laughs> is all of a sudden front and center in, in America again? What's happening? I, I think it has something to do with what Donald Trump has unleashed. Uh, it has something to do with what's uh, the reservoir that's underneath our politics that can always be activated at any moment. So it's not like something's new, something new has happened. It's always underneath. It's the undertow. Uh, someone is going to need to explain this one to me. Uh, someone's going to need to explain to me how Trump could be responsible for this. Trump did not go back in time and make this guy take this photo. I mean, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. How is blackface a thing? Uh, this photo just surfaced from 30-some-odd years ago. This has nothing to do with Donald Trump. I mean, that, that they would try to make this... You know, this is like blaming Donald Trump for the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Like, when do we reach the, the crazy point where we no longer have to uh, take these people seriously when they say things like this? I mean, that was that was the stretch of all stretches. But they, but it gets crazier. Well, maybe not crazier. Well, no, this might be crazier. So you got the Northam controversy. This guy's still the governor of Virginia. Let's just take a moment. This guy's still the governor of Virginia. I was in that photo. No, I wasn't in that photo. I never painted my face black. No, I did paint my face black. I mean, this guy, you know, he, he can't he can't shoot straight, can't speak straight. Who knows what's coming out of this guy's mouth next? Meanwhile, you have the lieutenant governor, uh, governor lieutenant governor Fairfax, who yesterday in a press conference suggests that Northam, the actual go the Democrat governor, the guy that he serves under and is on the ticket with, that Northam may be behind the Fairfax allegations of a sexual assault from 15 years ago. Play 20. Uh, you believe that the governor's team is spreading misinformation about your team. Can you comment on that? Please? You know, I, I don't know uh, precisely where this is coming from. I know, you know, we've heard uh, different things, but but here's the thing. Uh, does anybody think it's any coincidence that on the eve uh, of potentially uh, my being elevated, that that's when this uncorroborated smear comes out? Does anybody believe that's a coincidence? Uh, I don't I don't think anybody believes that's a coincidence. It goes away uh, for a year and then crops back up right at this moment. Uh, you don't have to be uh, cynical. Uh, you don't have to understand politics uh, to understand when someone's trying to manipulate uh, a process to uh, to harm someone's character without any basis whatsoever. Uh, does anybody think it's a coincidence that on the on the eve of my being elevated, that's when this comes out? Now, you could say that 
you could say that uh, he's you know alluding to it could be anybody, but he he makes it pretty clear that uh, he thinks that Northam could be involved. I mean, this is nuts. I think that's in another soundbite, but he says some really, uh, really inflammatory stuff. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, is it is it possible that Governor Northam really hates Fairfax so much that he would he would try to you know elevate this now? That then brings me back to the the Fairfax situation. You will recall on this show, I was saying during the Kavanaugh hearing, and I was one of the earliest on the right. There were some others, but who was just saying, not that, oh, we need to wait for more evidence. I said, no, these women are lying. They're lying. This is a lie. We should understand that they're lying. And that got me a lot of heat. Got a lot of people that were, well, not a lot of people, but a a few other people who were there with me also got a lot of heat. Um, But one of the reasons that was so upsetting was that it also represented the whole Kavanaugh character assassination plot represented a a concerted effort by the left, by the Democrats and their entire left wing apparatus to remove any due process and any factual basis for an allegation for it to be able to destroy you, meaning that all that has to happen is someone comes forward. You're a conservative. They say you did something with no corroboration, no facts, nothing whatsoever other than the allegation itself and some vague personal connection. Remember, remember, Blasey Ford didn't remember the year, didn't remember the month, didn't remember the house. Uh, said people were there who said they weren't there. Didn't remember how she got home. I mean, you know, all she remembered is that the guy that at that point was about to become the greatest threat to Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court's history, that's how the left saw it, was about to be elevated and she had an opportunity to be a hero to the feminist Democrat left and its pro-abortion obsession. That That was what she saw, an opportunity to be a hero to the left. And the media didn't just treat her allegation as though it were credible. The media treated her allegation as though it was sacred. She had a right to be believed. Well, if you have a right to be believed, which is a stupid concept to begin with, that's we have evidence for a reason. Right? We have the ability to confront your accuser for a reason. These processes are in place to defend and uphold justice. But if she had a right to be believed with her preposterous story, which when you add to the other even more preposterous stories, the woman who thinks maybe Brett Kavanaugh showed his, you know, his man part to her, but like she wasn't sure and she had to call other people to find out. And the other woman who said that there were gang rape parties going on that Brett Kavanaugh attended, but she was too old probably to be attending them. No one else saw this. No one else heard about this. And she never called the cops. And she was a college kid hanging out with high schoolers and didn't think this was weird. I mean, just... These people are such liars. Now that we've had a little bit of time, isn't it amazing that anyone believe this crap? But the standard was set by Democrats then that they were willing. Again, this is what they're willing to do. They were willing to discard everything when it came to due process and fairness to the accused because it was in their short-term political interest to do so. Here now we have Lieutenant Governor Fairfax. The woman is named has come forward, knows him, knows where this event, the sexual assault allegedly happened, the time that it allegedly happened, 
the circumstances in which it allegedly happened. And he did have a sexual relationship with her. So how is it, how can any person make the claim that the Washington Post, for example, which refused to report on the allegations against Fairfax, but gleefully reported on all of the Kavanaugh allegations and never referred to them as uncorroborated, never referred to them as without evidence, which they were. All of the allegations against Kavanaugh were without evidence, a phrase the media loves to use when they talk about Trump. Fairfax, there's a, it's, it's a he said, she said. I don't think we'll ever be able to prove it one way or the other. That's what often happens in these situations. But... It's not without corroboration or evidence. He said they had sex. They had a relationship. So, you know, and she says that she was assaulted. Now, I don't know if it's true or not. And by the way, I think that Fairfax deserves the presumption of innocence here. I think that Fairfax should be treated fairly in this process because I don't like to embrace scummy tactics just because the other side does it. But when it comes to the media and how they're covering this, I'm sorry. This is why journos are not the firefighters of democracy. They are the arsonists of democracy. More coming. Stay with me. Global Verification Network is the only dual certified veteran owned background investigation and vetting company. It is a fantastic organization, and it's one that you should get to know if you have any background checks that you need done for your company. So if you are a small business or a large business, Fortune 100 all the way down to startups, you should check them out because they can tailor the program to fit your needs specifically. They'll get your background checks done so quickly, so efficiently and they're great guys who run this company. I know them personally. I can vouch for them, all right? Call. Tell them that Buck Sexton sent you. Call 877-695-1179. That's 877-695-1179. Or you can go to mygvn.com. Again, that's mygvn.com. These guys are the people for your background checks. No data or client information ever offshored. Go with Global Verification Network. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. If you look at Afghanistan, we're going in very soon. We'll be going into our 19th year. Spending $50 billion a year. Now, if you go back and look at any of my campaign speeches or rallies, I talked about it all the time. You did. You've been talking about this. And that's. I support the president on this. I think to call it a precipitous withdrawal after 17 years is ludicrous. I mean, we've been there 17 years. We need to learn as a country how to declare victory. I think the president is steadfast that uh, we need to do things differently, that the foreign policy swamp that says we should stay forever in Afghanistan, that they're wrong. This is something that I'm expecting tonight during the State of the Union will get some attention. The president trying to finally get us on the exit ramp from Afghanistan. How could anyone say that we haven't spent enough time in that country? Uh, look, I, I've spoken to and I'm in contact with some people that are still downrange. And and I have friends on the government side who still come in and out of Afghanistan and are working against the Taliban and trying to do what they can. And I understand their their personal loyalty to those who are fighting alongside us in that conflict. It's a, it's a noble thing 
to feel loyalty to people that you have fought alongside and that you have been working with in some cases for many, many years now. But we also need to think of the national interest and national security interest of this country. And frankly, I have a very hard time thinking of a way to justify an endless U.S. presence in Afghanistan. And we should be clear about this. That's what is on the table here. We either leave or you know, move toward leaving now, or we should just accept that we're going to be there for the rest of my lifetime for sure in some capacity. And that and, and remember, as I said in Syria, a limited presence that seems stable and minimal, if any casualties, a, a limited presence can become a large presence very quickly. You know, a limited presence leads to a much larger one when all of a sudden whole parts of the country are overrun by insurgents, when you have a mass casualty attack. You know, this this is, you know, mission creep, which I would note is something that, that Democrats in the left were very familiar with and in favor of until quite recently. It's when Trump is opposed. It's when Trump has a problem uh, with continuing in Afghanistan. It's when Trump is opposed to staying in Afghanistan indefinitely that all of a sudden you see people on the left having difficulty with the notion of ending this war. You know, today we had a spokesperson on rising we had a spokesperson from the DNCCCCC or something. You know, we had a spokesperson on and his whole spiel was exactly what I thought it would be about how Democrats want, uh, you know, they, they want a government that works for all Americans, but all the usual all the usual boilerplate talking point stuff. But I got to ask him one question, which is when you are a Democrat tonight at the State of the Union and the president talks about ending the war in Afghanistan, do you cheer or do you sit? Now, I, I think the whole cheering and sitting thing is is kind of is kind of silly to begin with. So I, I'm not a big fan of all the pageantry and the pomp and circumstance around the State of the Union. And those of you who have been listening to the show for years now know this. No matter no matter who's the president, I'm I'm really not a State of the Union guy. I don't get that excited about these things. But if you're a Democrat on a matter of war and peace, on a matter of U.S. troops in harm's way on a battlefield, and the president of the United States says we're going to end this. Don't you have an obligation to your own ideology? Never mind to the troops that you're supposedly uh, hoping will come home, right? I mean, the left has been anti-war for years, although you'll notice, and this was to the left's tremendous discredit, that the anti-war movement disappeared under the Obama administration, just disappeared. Yeah, there were a few code pink types who would pop up and, and scream and be crazy here and there. But it was overwhelmingly the case that when there was a Democrat president, all of a sudden no one really cared anymore about the fact that there weren't just troops in harm's way. Obama escalated the U.S. presence in Afghanistan over 100,000 soldiers and fought some very they fought some very bloody battles in Helmand province and Kandahar and, and southern Afghanistan. And he escalated while also claiming that an imminent de-escalation would happen. So he set he set a timetable while setting the escalation in place, which, you know, that that really undercuts your strategy. I remember I was on CNN 
with Bob Bear and a few other people uh, doing a panel on this issue. And I said, look, there's oh, and they had one of these one of these pro Hillary left wing generals, a lot of pro Hillary left wing generals they find to put on CNN. I didn't meet any pro Hillary left wing generals in Iraq or Afghanistan. I met a lot of generals, but uh, they always find the pro Hillary ones, you know, to go on CNN. Uh, and, you know, one of them was just saying, oh, you know, it's not true. And I remember Bob Bear, to his credit, was like, no, it's true. You, you shouldn't. You shouldn't announce to the enemy, well, if you can just wait till this date, this whole thing, all this pressure we're putting on you is going to end. That hurts your leverage for any negotiation. I mean, if you're going to surge, at least surge. You know, if you're going to try to make some change happen on the ground, don't do that after you've said that the change is only going to be temporary. But this is, uh, again, what I think shows you that the left is is unserious about so many things. And one of the things that the left is unserious about is uh, their anti-war position as anything other than a partisan cudgel. Back to Trump, though. I think that he is going to end the war in Afghanistan. And I think that things could start to go very badly there. Uh, We'll see the Taliban ascendant and there'll be some shaky power sharing agreement between the various factions uh you know here's a perfect example cnn international as trump seeks an exit from afghanistan moscow steps in well this is already the case we are not the only actor in afghanistan from outside of the country you got the iranians playing a very big role the pakistanis playing a huge role the chinese play a role the russians play a role the the Uh, The Uzbeks play a role. The Tajiks play a role. I mean, you go down all these different countries, both regional and then global in terms of their reach and scope. All these different countries have interest in Afghanistan that they're already pursuing. What is our interest? Our interest is supposed to be preventing Afghanistan from becoming a haven for terrorist operations against the homeland. Given our quick strike capabilities from, uh, you know, aerial units from unmanned aerial vehicles you know from from uavs with uh, with lethal kinetic capability given those pieces that we have and the possibility that we could always land a uh or we could we could always send back in essentially a an elite unit if we had to as a strike force against some group there we just no longer have this same role to play of trying to hold this country together. There are plenty of places that are terror safe havens, and we don't lose sleep about them right now. Why should we lose sleep about an Afghanistan that is at least partially run by the Taliban when it is already the case that there are places in Afghanistan, as well as places in Somalia, places in Nigeria, where there are terrorist strongholds? You know, if they if they run the table and take the whole country over, we might have a bit more of a problem. But I think the Taliban realizes at some level that it was a strategic. Now, this doesn't mean they won't do it again, but it was a strategic mistake to play host to Al Qaeda uh, for their own purposes. And, you know, any country now that would play host to a group that would come after us the way Al Qaeda did on 9-11 would have to understand that the wrath and fury of the United States when it is attacked in that way is something to to be truly afraid of. Uh, and, and if we had to go back into Afghanistan, I think that the the destruction that we would uh, that we would be willing to unleash would 
would dwarf what has been the case in the U.S. Uh, occupation of that country and, and was the case even the Soviets. Essentially, if we have to go back, there's not going to be a whole lot left standing, I think, is really the way it's going to way it's going to shake out. And I think the Taliban at some level probably knows that the Taliban are very bad guys, but they're very bad guys in a lot of countries in the Muslim world and in the broader world. So we can't make all this our problem. I think Trump's move here, if he follows through, is the right one. I think the Senate rebuking him with this bill just shows how stale they are in their foreign policy thinking and how they really have become disconnected from what is perpetual war. I mean, the U.S. has been at war since I was a sophomore in college. It's time to start ending this stuff. And I think Trump is the man to do it. And I hope he says so tonight during the State of the Union. You are days away, my friends, from Valentine's Day. Do not wait. You know, some places are going to have a hard time, even if they're local, just getting the delivery out on the day. And nobody wants Valentine's Day flowers the day after. Do it right with my friends at 1-800-Flowers.com. That's what I'm doing. Miss Molly's getting her flowers next week on Valentine's Day. Beautiful roses are being sent to her. Look, I even got a, a test bouquet, so I can tell you these roses are incredible. I'm sending her a couple of bouquets on the day. You should do the same. It's going to be something that your loved one really remembers. All right, make it happen. To order the 18-stem Enchanted Rose Medley for my friends at 1-800-Flowers for only $29.99, or you can double those roses, only 20 bucks more. Go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon, and enter code BUCK. You'll see what I mean. Go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click on that radio icon, enter code BUCK today. We have one more Super Bowl-related story for you, friends, but don't worry, you're not going to hear my... Weak sauce analysis of is Tom Brady the goat? That's not why I'm here. We got something else, though, that I want to bring to your attention. Is there discrimination against certain political or just even general viewpoints when it comes to Super Bowl ads that will and will not be accepted? Is there an anti-conservative, even anti-patriotic bias? I know I sound like Radio Man right now. To answer all that stuff, we have our friend Tyler Merritt in the house. He is the CEO of Nine Line Apparel, maker of fantastic T-shirts, hoodies, sweatshirts, all the rest of it. Mr. Tyler Merrick, great to have you back. Hey, thank you so much for having us back. Yeah, man. Tyler's also a badass veteran, Apache pilot. He's got cool stories. So you guys can all, you know, send him emails and he'll, he'll tell you stuff. Go visit them down in Savannah at the Nine Line Apparel uh, factory and, and store. But uh, Tyler, y- you tried to get a Super Bowl ad. And I'm seeing here that there were some problems with accepting your Super Bowl ad request. Walk us through this. Yeah, there's definitely some uh, extreme bias going on. The stated reason for uh, denying the ad was credit. Uh, And I do a lot of credit background checks because I deal with millions and millions of dollars in apparel purchasing. And not to be braggadocious, you know, but I I gave them our Bank of America president's cell phone number, his email address. They could validate the money we have in our bank account. We could have prepaid. uh, But instead, you know, two days before the Super Bowl ad uh, was supposed to or needed to air, we got a letter saying that we've denied your ad based on credit. Uh, The only person they actually called was a uh, person with a Hannity.com email address, and their response was to one question. 
does Tyler Merritt or Nyman Apparel have have they paid their bills on time and you know uh, on a repetitive basis? And the answer was yes. You know we pay our bills. In fact, all of our uh, you know advertisers or anyone that we work with will say the same thing. So it's kind of adding insult or injury. So you're saying that I can't have an ad because I don't have credit uh, without validating it. It's just the nicest way of saying we don't want to play your ad. Now, what was the ad supposed to be? I mean, was this going to be something that, oh, no, celebrated the troops in America, Tyler? How dare you? Which is weird because the NFL is supposed to like both of those things. Yeah, I, I think there's a difference between what they're trying to do in terms of placating to their audience. They know that their audience is patriotic in nature. They understand that, that they, they being some of the social elites that are in charge of the NFL, they might not necessarily believe in the same values of their customers. So they do like to subvert and, and change the narrative. Uh, and that's my hypothesis. I don't have any uh, definitive proof, but I do know for a fact that if given the opportunity to put a pro-patriotic advertisement on an NFL sporting event, I'll prepay. So if that's the case that you're going to deny my ad based on a lack of funds when there were available funds, then just allow me the opportunity to prepay. I'll pay in advance, and then we will be able to present some ads that are counter to the Nike propaganda, the idea that a Colin Kaepernick represents all that is good, sacrifice in this nation. Our ad depicted real heroes. Uh, Benghazi survivor Mark Geist was the narrator. The other individual you couldn't see, but he is missing his legs. He's a EOD hero who lost both his legs uh, overseas. And then the last individual uh, is an employee of mine, former Ranger Battalion Purple Heart recipient. You know, these are real Americans. Maybe it wasn't the production quality of Nike. Uh, but it got to the heart of what we represent, which is true sacrifice. Um, and, and really what we were saying is that you have the right to be an idiot. You have a right to take a knee during the national anthem. It's our right to say that you know the ends don't justify the means. Using that as a platform is wrong, however you want to spin it. And if you want to call me racist, that's just ignorance. Do you guys, do you come up against this uh, in other contexts where, see, see, here's the thing, I mean, from an outsider, non-veteran perspective, people feel like, well, everybody in America supports and respects veterans, right? But, you know, your organization, yes, you help veterans, you're all about first responders, too, you've been a sponsor here on the show in the past, uh, but, you know, you take what are in some contexts, uh, considered a, a political point of view, whether we call it that or not. I mean, it's true, right? I mean, you're pro Second Amendment. Well, that obviously sets off certain alarm bells for certain people. Do you ever feel like you come up against, even though you're a veteran owned and operated company, you got a bunch of former combat vets working for you and with you and, and partnering with you? Do you feel like there are some corporate folks that they won't be overt about it, but they got a problem with what you represent? Absolutely. And, and I think that's perfectly fine. You know, Nike chose uh, to double down with what they consider as their demographic, maybe a little bit more left-leaning. Uh, but it's an opportunity for other individuals and other companies to come out there and say, you know, we don't agree with your messaging. I, I agree that the Second Amendment should be upheld. I agree that First Amendment should be upheld. All the amendments should be upheld. There's just different interpretations. It's freedom of speech is taking a knee and burning a flag. Absolutely. Freedom of speech is calling someone an idiot for doing those things as well. So you're allowed to do just about anything you want to do. That's what I love about this country. But I have the ability to say I don't agree with you, and here's why. Uh, and, and because you put out this messaging, I'm going to put out the 
other side's perspective. And then hopefully we can come together in a venue like this and have a cordial conversation. Uh, That's the idea. That's the whole purpose of our company is to be a voice for the veterans, be a voice for the first responders. And we have a platform and and we'll use it. If I can, just something something much less important but, but of interest. How much would a Super Bowl ad have costed? Oh, we didn't even get to that point. Uh, oh. They don't even publish their rates until after they approve, uh, approve the content and approve that uh, you can afford it. But it's kind of hard to d- deny someone for credit without even telling them how much it is. And we had a 15-second, a 30-second, and a 45-second, depending on what the costs were. Uh, and it turns out afterwards that it was about $5 million for a 45-second uh, a, a ad. Yeah, I probably would have cut it down to a 30-second, but I did have money in our bank account to cover that check. And if anyone wants to call me a liar, then I'm happy to introduce you to my Bank of America president, and he can show you. No, I don't think anyone's going to do that, man. I think we all know what happened here, which is, once again, certain messages are welcome in the marketplace. And, and in this case, though, I think NFL fans would be pretty unhappy to know that a veteran-owned and operated company was maybe getting shut out of – you know, being you know that your your money was no good apparently at the at the Super Bowl, uh, my friend Tyler Merritt. So uh, we're getting the word out here though, and uh, everyone should go check out NineLineApparel.com. T-shirts, sweatshirts. I I actually true story have a Nine Line Apparel T-shirt on as I am doing the show. So there you have it, Tyler Merritt. Everybody, Tyler, thanks so much for joining, my friend. I'll talk to you soon. Fuck you, the best. Thanks, man. Team, we'll be uh, back and getting a roll call shortly. Stay with me. It's not an incredibly important story in the national scope, but uh, caught my attention. I wanted to share it with you before we get ready to get into roll call here. And it's about a community patrol uh, that is in New York City, in my in my hometown, that is a Muslim community patrol. And the Muslim community patrol is privately funded and it drives around in a part of of Brooklyn with what are patrol cars that you you would not easily be able to tell are not, in fact, police cars. These are just private vehicles that are in the uh, painted in, you know, the the manner of a police car. So essentially, you've got guys who are a religious, uh, a religiously affiliated organization who are going to be driving around and saying that they are providing, uh, saying they're providing assistance to the police, like a normal community watch would. I, I get that, but you know, this just strikes some people, and I oh, I know they're going to say, "Oh, Buck, it's all Islamophobia." But why, why can't you just do a community watch for people that live in the community? Why call it a a Muslim community patrol? Why not just say it's a community patrol? Uh, that, that doesn't seem that strange to me. Now, I, I'm sure I know there are other groups and what there's Guardian Angels. and But Guardian Angels is not a, to my knowledge, a religious organization. Uh, this is not a, a sanctioned group by any government body. And yet they're going to be driving around in a car that is made to look. It says Muslim Community Patrol on the side and it looks like a cop car. So, you know, they may say they don't have a badge or a gun, but there's going to be at least some sense that they have the force of law. I mean, a normal person seeing this is in New York. 
Okay, this is in New York City. This is not some overseas thing. Uh, this is a little... Uh, I, I think people are allowed to look at this and, and just ask some some questions. Now, there's, there is, as they put out here a uh, in this piece, the Shamrim, which patrols... It's a Hasidic neighborhood patrol. And the Brooklyn Asian Safety Patrol that operates in Sunset Park. And, you know, there is a free association issue here. I get that. People are allowed to get together and patrol around. But this, the Muslim community patrol, for one, it's, you know, I'm even more, you know, I I can understand a geographic region. You know, Asian, yes, it's an ethnicity, but it's also a continent. It's a huge area. Um, And, you know, the, the, the Shamrim that patrols the Hasidic neighborhood in Brooklyn, you know, a community, community patrol is fine. I get it. It's just when you are looking like a police car and you're driving around in in a neighborhood and wearing very official looking uniforms, I think it starts to blur some lines. Now they have no they have no uh, official uh, uh, official powers, but it's just I, I can't lie to you. It strikes me as a little strange. And I'm not sure I'm okay with any religious specific, Patrol. That's remember. I'm not saying you can't walk around your neighborhood and make sure that everyone's safe. You know, that's a, it's intended to mimic police. If you saw this photo, you'd see what I mean. It's intended to look like a police patrol, and th- I know I, I think that we're starting to get up against a line there. You know, I, I gotta think. I'm thinking about this one a little bit more. But obviously, the and this is where the Islamophobia would come in. The left would say everything else. But they have this in the Muslim world. They have a lot of non-police patrols or, or patrols that have police power but aren't standard police. They're religious police in the sense that they enforce religious norms. I just wonder if in some of these neighborhoods you could ever see a situation unfolding. Maybe it's with the Hasidic patrol or maybe it's with the Muslim patrol where they start to do a little more you know, social and cultural patrolling than they do public safety stuff. And I, I, I don't know about this. You know, people would say, Buck, you know, a militia. This is, it's a, it's a more complicated topic than it seems at first, right? We are citizens. We have the right to defend ourselves, to be sure. But do we have the right to form a little group that dresses like cops, but doesn't actually have guns or badges, but goes around and presents themselves to look like police. I mean, you could not tell that this Muslim community patrol was not a cop car, an NYPD car, unless you looked closely at it and you were within, I'd say, 50 feet of it. You would not know. So are we we cool with that? I'm, I'm just putting it out there. If you haven't seen it, it's in the New York Times. It's an interesting story. And uh, I'm sure if you look in the comments section, you'll see a whole lot of interesting analysis. But... I have a feeling you're going to see more of these. And as we talk about our very multicultural and diverse society, when do we not think it's a good thing for communities to set up kind of a a self-policing that is based on a religious identity or uh, or any kind of specific identity? Well, we'll see. We got roll call coming up. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for Roll Call.
State of the Union night is the craziest party in all the land. In all the land, it's like I'm in a fairy tale. That's not really what I meant to say. In all the U.S. of A., I don't know, something like that. That's right. Tonight, I'm going to be hanging out at the Trump HQ, which is the uh, Trump Hotel. I'll be there with some friends watching the State of the Union. There'll be a State of the Union watching party in effect. Should be good times. So uh, that's that's my plan for tonight. I got that going for me, uh, which is nice. In fact, as soon as I am finished here, I'm going to be right over there. Fortunately for me, the Trump Hotel is about a five-minute walk from where I am doing this radio show. The Hill and the Trump Hotel are not far apart. So let's get to it. Your thoughts before the State of the Union happens. Connor writes, Buck, great point on Monday's show about the impossibility of a classless society. I think what those champions of socialism often forget is that capitalism is what allows nonprofit and charitable groups to help those in need. Everything from food banks to the Red Cross to church missions are funded by the fruits of capitalism. This doesn't even count the good deeds done by individuals across America. In a socialist society, nobody has any extra wealth to use for good or otherwise indeed uh that's an important point that you make my friend and yes it is the uh, incredible abundance and wealth of a capitalist society that makes it possible for us to be as generous i mean the american people for example are much more generous on an individual basis and all the studies have shown this than our european counterparts that's right, the French is like, oh, we care so much about the socialism, but we don't want to give the francs to the uh, poor people because uh, I want to keep all the francs for myself. Buy extra bottles of red wine. May we, oui, mademoiselle, the red wine. Okay, stop. Stop, Buck. Get a grip. Get a grip, son. Rita, shield tie, Buck. Just thinking about Don Lemon. Gladys Knight and Kaepernick, is it possible that Kaepernick feels guilty because he is adopted and therefore has some form of white privilege? As a boy raised by a single mother, he would have had a vastly different outcome statistically, so he feels fake. I drove by a medical school for 30 years on my way to work, so I feel qualified to diagnose his problem. Um, well, Rita, I'm not sure I'm qualified to analyze your diagnosis, so I'll just let it speak for itself. David... Shields High Buck, podcast listener, love the show. Honestly, I think you're giving outfits like Washington Compost too much credit for referring to them as journalists like they do to themselves. We, need, uh, we do need journalists, people who spread the truth no matter what it is. What we don't need are propagandists, which is what the mainstream media is. CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, WAPO, and HuffPost are all just propagandists for the DNC. They know, their audience knows it, and everybody knows they know it. You know, David, I think you're right. Uh, I think you're right that I we do need journalists if journalists were what they're supposed to be or if a journalist is what he or she is supposed to be, which is a person who brings facts in the form of stories, you know, information without fear or favor provided to the people so that they can know what is going on. That's a very important role. But there are a lot of ways that that happens now that do not involve traditional journalist uh, journalistic endeavors. I'm not saying that makes journalism completely moot. It doesn't mean that it's all null and void. 
but you diagnose the problem properly. The problem is that people that say they are journalists are increasingly and more and more obviously, uh, it's obvious to me at least, that they're activists. These are activists. They're not really journalists. And that's that's really why I don't have respect for what they're saying. There is this guy. This is this is real. This is I have to tell you about this. I haven't mentioned this yet before on the show. So there have been all these layoffs from the Huffington Post and BuzzFeed. A lot of people get fired. And I I will agree with with the sentiment because I share it that. It's always a bummer when someone loses their job and it puts stress on families and, you know, people, you know, our, our obligation to each other as human beings is more important than our political obligations. That said, some of the journos who have been canned from these places, I'm familiar with their work, and some of them are always very quick to cheer loudly when a Republican gets boycotted or when, or rather a conservative media person gets boycotted. You know, they're happy to... to uh, to stomp on our professional grave, so to speak. But now we're not supposed to do it to them. I understand two wrongs don't make a right, but there is a little part of me that says, you know, I don't think that this same degree of decency would be extended from, in fact, I know the same degree of decency would not be extended from the other side. Um, they, though, have also decided that it is unacceptable to tell journalists, learn to code. Now, this is kind of an insidery joke uh, because journalists for years now, and some of you may have seen this, whenever there are layoffs in a manufacturing plant, they'll say, well, you know, maybe they just learn how to code, meaning they need to learn computer programming so that they can have a job for the future, the jobs of the future, right? And learn to code became this kind of snide journalism shorthand for, you know, why don't you, 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 you silly, you know, backwoods, ignorant, illiterate red stater, uh, why don't you learn how to do something valuable, like learn how to computer code, which, by the way, for most people is something that is, uh, it's going to be hard for them to learn, and it's a skill. It's not like learning to drive, where once you learn, you've learned. It's a skill, uh, one that is in demand, but only if you're particularly good at it. Anyway, a lot of people were saying to these journalists, learn to code on Twitter as a kind of, yeah, that's right. Maybe you should have a little taste of your own medicine. Twitter has banned telling journalists who have been fired, learn to code. That's right. Learn to code is now a microaggression or not even, I guess it's a macroaggression that can get you suspended from Twitter. And some guy named Ben Popkin from NBC News this is guy's a verified account. He wrote, learn to code was tweeted at me by an account. I reported it as abusive behavior as part of targeted harassment. Twitter suspended the account within 20 minutes. Journalists, if they tweet learn to code at you, don't stay silent. Take a moment to report it. Y- you've, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, these are the same folks, these journo, this guy's at NBC News. These are the same journos who tell us they're so brave. They're they're actually out there doing the equivalent for our democracy of storming the beaches of Normandy. And by that, I mean taking out congressional staffers to lunch so that they can feed their propaganda through their various news organizations and pretend that they're unbiased. Right. That's really what they do. But they pretend that they're so brave and so wonderful and so good. And we will just have to see how it goes from here. I'm, I'm amazed. 
I'm amazed that learn learn to code is now consider abu- considered abusive. You cannot give journalists, they're such a bunch of snowflakes. I know it's a term that's fallen out of favor now, but journalists are such a bunch of snowflakes that you cannot give them professional advice about maybe what they should consider doing with their careers. That is now considered beyond the pale. Tells you a lot about the state of modern journalism. My man TJ writes, Buck, I could be wrong, but I think I sense a little bit of jealousy coming from Jamal this morning about your beard. Perhaps he's just jealous of the hair on your head in general. Way to keep your cool and not serve him a sick burn, which I'm sure you could do pretty easily. Well, thank you, TJ. I I try to be very uh, cordial and and particularly uh, tolerant when dealing with all liberals on the show Rising, of which I am co-host. But, uh, you know, the beard, the beard's coming in pretty nice. I got to say, it's getting a little redder. Although, in a sad moment, there are a couple of grays in there. I got a couple of grays in my beard. I'd like to think that it's some kind of follicular abnormality that does not have to do with me getting up there. But uh, that's right. Yours truly is now officially a gray beard millennial because I got gray in my beard. So things are, things are, you know, in flux. The times, they are a-changing. It's a crazy world we live in here, my friends, where, uh, man, it feels like I was just a young buck a day ago, and now here I am pulling gray hairs out of my beard. Uh, although it looks, it looks kind of distinguished, maybe. Hopefully, that would be a nice thing if it looked distinguished. Tammy writes, uh, Hi, Buck. Not sure if this is where you ask questions, but I have one. I'm struggling in New York, or who can hardly stand to stay in the state anymore, but I'm a small business owner, for it's hard, hard for me to pick up and move. I'm so morally conflicted with everything that Cuomo does, and this is my question. How is it that there are representatives, and they're legally allowed to make up any laws and enforce them to the people, yet they're supposed to be representing them at the same time? What if next year Cuomo says every other child you have must be exterminated? Then is it a law? I know that's taking it to the extremes, but when you live under... The if you're pro-life, pro-traditional marriage, pro-handgun, then we have no place for you on our state. You need to leave tyranny. Whoa, that's quite a mouthful. I have to wonder where it ends. Uh, Tammy, well, that's really why people have been so outraged by the New York and Virginia bills. Uh, the New York bill passed. Virginia bill, I believe, has still yet to pass because the the legalization of infanticide is not only a, a moral disgrace, it begins to uh, kick open far too wide the possibility of further degradations of morality through the law and the law is supposed to be an instrument of morality people say no it's not we don't legislate morality really i'm pretty sure killing people is an issue of morality it's not we have laws against murder not because it hurts the economy when someone gets killed all right team that's going to be it for me for today have a great state of the union i'll be waving to you from trump hotel shields high Yes, there's the AARP out there as an organization for seniors. But, you know, even if you're a member or somebody knows a member, I want to tell you some stuff. AARP is left wing. They're about statism, Obamacare, progressive policies. Is that what you're about? Because if the answer is no, I want you to check out my friends at AMAC. AMAC is the conservative alternative to AARP. And it brings a lot of value for its members, including discounts on car insurance, hotels, roadside assistance. And it advocates for seniors 
in ways that align with conservative values. Over 1.5 million Americans have already joined AMAC, and that number is growing, and I want you to be a part of that growing number. So stand with AMAC as they fight the good fight by becoming a member today. The benefits are great, but the cause is even greater. Tell your family and tell your friends. Join right now at amac.us slash buck. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S slash buck.